0: This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and in this episode, I have the delightful pleasure of welcoming Chantel Sang. Now, Chantel and I go back a little bit. I'm gonna Not say how far back, because Chantel, you still look so young. It's embarrassing. But Chantelle loves just about anything fermented and poured. And as she tells it, especially wine, tea, and cocktails. She turned that love into an over 20 years of serving drinks as a bartender, bar manager, and part-time sommelier. Her regularly scheduled passion of the last six years is running the literary cocktail series formerly based out of the reading room of the now-closed Pentworth Citizen, where every weekend she created specialty cocktail menus that were inspired by classic and contemporary literature. Unfortunately, the pandemic changed all that, but she has a monthly collaboration with the Gibson as well as Bon Siam for both live and two-go cocktail sessions, featuring, of course, literary cocktails and sometimes guest authors. In the past... She has held the rank of original bar manager and senior bartender of the country's first ever sherry bar, Mockingbird Hill, where she created and managed the wine list and cocktail program. And we're going to get into that in a little bit in the podcast. She was named Eater DC's 2013 Bartender of the Year and one of Daily Meal's 25 top bartenders in America. She was the first head mixologist for the historic Tabard Inn, where she created the Tabard Cocktail which was featured in one of her favorite publications, Imbibe. Lastly, she was the co-founder of Red Eye Menus, a sherry-pairing dinner social club that paired sherry with Asian food. Very cool. A true student of all things liquid, she is a bar-ready graduate of the BAR program, a certified sommelier via the Court of Master Sommeliers, and a certified sherry educator from the Consejo Regulador in Jerez. You might find Chantelle freelancing as a sherry educator, teaching virtual wine or cocktail classes, promoting the local library, cat-sitting, freelance chalk artist, or simply playing a mean game of pool. And you can definitely find her posting regularly on Twitter and Instagram. So I really encourage you to follow uh, Chantelle Sang And Chantelle, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to see you.
1: It's good to see you too. Thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, Chantel, I have to say, I've, I've known you for a while and I always associate you, Chantelle, with sherry. Uh, I know <laughs> that, you know, you have a, a passion for sherry, but a lot of people don't know a lot about that wonderful wine, which is a shame. I mean, I think most people have this misconception that all sherries are sweet. And I, I, you and I both know that's not true, but, you know, I mean, I'm curious, how many types of sherry are there?
1: Excellent question. Uh, I think in many ways it c- can be confusing for people uh, who don't realize just the breadth and range of sherry because there are actually a lot of types. Um, to say the exact number is a confusing thing because it's always such a it's such an active category. I would say think of it uh, like maybe 10. If I gave you to tell you that it's like, there's a possibility of a range of 10 different styles, uh, but then there's so much in between that constantly gets experimented with. But on the super dry side, for example, you have Manzanilla and Fino, Amontillado, Palo Cortado, Oloroso, and then you have sort of three different levels of cream or blended cherries. Uh, it's actually pale cream and then medium and then cream, cream. <laughs> and then there's also the dessert style cherries, which are Muscatel and PX, and those are very, very sweet. And so that's about 10 styles. The majority of sherry is in the drier categories in those first five. And you're looking at a range from less than a gram of sugar per liter to upwards of 400 grams of sugar per liter, which is why it can be very confusing.
0: (laughs) Right. And and, and it is. I mean, and when we talk about dry sherry, we talk about sherries that are absolutely not sweet. Correct?
1: Correct. In fact, some of the driest wines on the planet.
0: Wow. And, and remind our listeners, where does Sherry actually come from?
1: So Sherry hails from South Spain, Southern Spain, um, a very particular region sort of framed on these three towns uh, known as Jerez or Jerez de la Frontera, El Puerto de Santa Maria and San Lucar de Barrameda. And this is in Andalusia, so it's a small region. Um, Those three towns kind of fit together to be in a a sort of a triangle formation. But you have bodegas and warehouse shipping and all of the production, all in that surrounding area.
0: And as you might recall, uh, a million years ago, we we kind of met um, in Champagne, you know, Champagne is one of my passions. So in the Champagne region, you know, you're pretty limited to three grape varieties. What about in sherry? Is, is the sherry predominantly one type of grape or is it several?
1: Oh, excellent question. Because dry sherry is predominantly one grape. It's, all, it's called palomino or sometimes known as palomino fino, although the fino part gets confusing because there's the style fino. So we, we just say palomino. Um, and that's pretty much carrying the weight of most of sherry production. The two grape varietals that are used for the sweeter wines are Muscatel and PX. And so those three grape varietals, varieties, sorry, are what make up sherry production. But what also is super unique is um, just this uh, two months ago, just last September, you can say a regular door released these new upward uh, stipulations where they're opening up the grape varietals to be used to more native varietals that sort of fell by the wayside after phylloxera, which was that grape, I'm sorry, that vine louse that kind of devastated European wine regions in the 1800s. Uh, but there's actually a resurgence of some of the native varietals that are coming back. And so certain small producers are slowly bringing them back into production, which is pretty fascinating. And so this is super new and it's not really happening and you're not gonna go out and buy a bottle today with anything like that. Maybe years away from today, we might see, see a new bottle with some new varieties, but it's it's gonna be a small, small side of it all.
0: Wow, oh, that's pretty cool. And so, I guess there will always be something new to discover or learn about sherry.
1: Oh yes, it's constantly. It feels it's just a dynamic wine category. It there are there's the huge breadth of range. There's the history having developed over, over time, over the many thousands of years it's been in production, and. Like, if we think about what Sherry was a thousand years ago, even a hundred years ago, it's not the same today. So there's always that understanding that it is a de- developing. It's always evolving like like a person, <laughs> like a family with lineage.
0: You know, I, I kind of feel like poor little Sherry. It's kind of the little redheaded stepchild of Spain because there are all these preconceived notions about Sherry. What are what are some of the stereotypes you wish would just vanish, go away?
1: Oh yeah, exactly. I feel the same. Some of those stereotypes—they're the the ones that the main the main three are. Only old people drink sherry. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big one. Then, then there's the that all sherry is sweet, which we mentioned earlier. And of course, the third one is oh, that's just something you cook with. So those are the three main. And there's there's always going to be a a modicum of truth behind each stereotype, right? Obviously. there's a lot of history of sherry. So certainly there's many elderly people out there enjoying their sherry, but it's sort of how it breaks into a newer generations or newer palates. That's always exciting. Secondly, of course, that um, we already discussed, it's not all sweet, but there was a huge campaign, you know, I think it was in like the seventies, particularly led by, I believe, Harvey's Bristol cream of all places that uh, really kind of indoctrinated this brand and it kind of took over the, the the, at least the u.s for sure and there's that kind of helped contribute to the fact that oh this is the sherry that we're talking about and it was a very sweet sherry it is a sweet sherry and then of course thirdly sherry is that's something you only cook with which is fascinating because what we'll talk about too later is just how exceptional sherry goes with with food Um, the range and the food pairings with do not get talked about as much as they could
0: well, I don't want to wait. <laughs> what are some pairings <laughs> uh, that that you have for sherry wine that you know maybe are off the beaten path?
1: Oh yeah. So, and when you when you're thinking about the drier styles, the finos, the manzanillas, and even some of the amontillados, uh, you know you have the classic, right? We all know what goes together, grows together, in that sort of world with Spanish tapas, um, like your cured meats and your nuts and your olives. But the thing is. A lot of a lot of these wines just go really great with um, fried pumpkin and French fries and fried Wait, what? chicken. What? <laughs> just there's this beautiful savory quality that just picks up great with so many types of food and the richer the food. Sometimes, uh, for example, in Asian cuisines, I'm a huge fan of some of the richer cherries like Amontillados and Olorosos and the Palo Cortados to pair with like sort of richer broth ramens and miso soup in general with Amontillado. And then on the other side of the spectrum, Oloroso and some Palo Cortados, and then as you get richer and sweeter, are just perfect with like Thanksgiving pies, like just so there's so much we can talk about. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, okay. So I, I got to say, you're throwing a lot of terminology out there that a lot of our listeners may not know about. So can you maybe just give us a brief primer on some of the dry sherries that you were just talking about? Oloroso, like what, what's Oloroso and some of the other uh, types of sherries that you just were rattling off?
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly. So, uh, the way to break down and think about sherry is there's you think about the dry sherries, you think about the sweet sherries and the blends, but you also think about the sherries that are biologically aged versus oxidatively aged. And what biologically aged means are wines that are harvested from the season and then collected and enter their system of aging and blending called the solar system. And the, the biologically age refers to these wines then also live with an active yeast that is naturally occurring in the environment. And it's known as floor. So it's like flour in Spanish. And it's this, combination of local saccharomyces blends of yeast that, that sort of interact with the wine and give it that really amazing, savory, complex character. And that'll happen and it blended through the cellar system. And these wines usually, the minimum is two years average age, but they're mostly between three and five years. And we're talking about Finos and Manzanillas. And then amontillados are those wines that continue to age without the floor, and they start to become more oxidatively aged. And that, of course, oxidative means interacting with oxygen. So unlike unlike dry table wines like your pinot grigios and your chardonnays of the world, you're actually letting oxygen be a factor in the maturation process and having it how it. Um, change and alter and create a certain type of complexity. So all Olorosos are just 100% oxidatively aged. Um, and that's sort of the main difference. So aged under this really beautiful blanket of yeast called floor, And uh, that's, that yeast blanket actually serves as a blanket and protects the wine from oxygen, right? And then there's the wines that sort of live and age and uh, mature under the floor and then also have a second phase where they oxidatively age with oxygen. And then there's the wines, the Olorosos that just age oxidatively. And those are the the main differences. And then there's sort of elements of fortification that change along that path as well.
0: What are some of the characteristics of of each of those types of of, uh, wines and the way that they're both produced and aged?
1: So the finos and manzanillas are very crisp. They are tangy and they have this great like yeasty, oftentimes a bit of a sourdough kick, sometimes hints of hay and chamomile and green apple. Um, And those those are just. Delightfully savory. And this is what I mean when I talk about some of the driest wines on the planet. So less than a gram of sugar per liter. Um, So adaptable. They, They work so well to add that extra complex note to cocktails to adapt with different types of food from ham to seafood to vegetarian bites and I mean, I was just thinking about a pairing I'm doing for an upcoming Sherry Week dinner that involves scallops, which I can't even stop thinking about right now, but I'm trying to focus on other things. (laughs) The uh, Amontillado is just probably the most versatile of the categories of Sherry for food pairing, Um, and that's the one, that's the type of wine that starts its life under that floor, and then second phase um, ages without the floor, and those are a little going to be a little bit aged longer, older than your Finos and Manzanilla, and that you start to notice the color change. You go from crisp and tangy and golden yellow and hints of sunlight. We'll just say that because it's sunny in Jerez. And then uh, then you, you start to get that oxidative quality where you see the, the notes of caramel and topaz start to come in and the amber develops and then on the site. And and then you get your Olorosos, which have more of that like walnut hue and darker uh, wood, woody edge. Other, so the characteristics with the Amontillado, right now we're getting like nutty and we still have that fun. I always get like, a, what's the word? I get that umami feel from Amontillados, which is another reason why I'm they're just so brilliant with food and many different types of cuisine. And the Olorosos are richer. And you get more of those like warmer baking spices and the walnut character. And they still finish dry, um, but they have a little more mouth feel. Um, so the floor, when it ages... Uh, with the dry wines, the Finos and the Manzanillas, it actually eats up a lot of the sugars and produces these other compounds, which are aromatic and complex. So with the Olorosa doesn't have that. So you have more mouthfeel.
0: I, I got to tell you, Chandel, your, your enthusiasm, your passion is absolutely infectious. I'm getting so excited just about thinking about sherry. And, and I hope our listeners are, too, because, again, I think it's a, a wine that a lot of times people don't even think about or um, venture into when they see it on a wine list. And lately, when I see sherrys on a wine list, I get really excited. It tells me two things. One, that I think that the psalm is going to be pretty thoughtful. And two, I'm in for an adventure because I I think sherrys are just fascinating. Now, I'm going to circle back to something you just said. You said sherrys work really well in cocktails. Tell me a little bit more about that. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe even sharing a a few examples of, of your cocktail recipes? I think that'd be kind of cool.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Sherry is, I always like to call Sherry the perfect host because it adapts to a little bit of everything. So you can, you can mix a cocktail like a fino or an uh with tequila. You can mix it with gin and you, and it'll work each time you'll be like, oh, this, this also works too. And this also works too. It adapts to what, its surroundings and what it's got to what it's got to work with there are amazing classic recipes that have been around since the 17 and 1800s there are a lot of really new uh cocktails out there from our modern bar world with a lot of creative mixologist bartenders out there it's one of the secret ingredients to a lot of people's uh Bar programs. They're like, well, how do I make this taste a little bit extra? Turn it up a notch or give it just that extra kick and complexity. Oh, we'll add a little sherry. But classics like the sherry cobbler, which uh, actually came about and brought about the popularization of the modern straw among things. And it's just a, a delicious combination of sherry, some kind of a sweetener, fresh fruit over like crushed ice, and then you sip it through the straw. There's the bamboo and the adonis, which are, I like to think of them both sort of the the low AB version of a classic dry martini and a Manhattan. So you have like a dry sherry stirred with dry vermouth and orange bitters. And then you have like a, a dry sherry also, but more of oxidative uh, stirred with sweet vermouth with bitters and an orange peel for your Manhattan. And then as far as as far as modern recipes, uh, there's a little cocktail I call the Tabard cocktail from back in my days when I used to work at the Tabard Inn. And that is uh, mixed with a reposado tequila, amontillado, and I was using uh, a really delicious lush amontillado at the time, Los Arcos. Uh, but other amontillados will also work really great. With a little bit of Drambuie and orange bitters garnished with fresh thyme. I love fresh herbs um, pairing with uh, with sherry cocktails because they just they have an affinity for each other. It's that little bit of savory over the last 10 20 years I've just been telling everybody I really like my wine salty I really like savory and and really what I mean is put some sherry in it put some sherry in there
0: <laughs> so I want to also touch on the the whole idea of literary cocktails uh, I, I, I tried uh, several times to actually get down to um, yeah I'm sorry yeah you were doing it out of the reading room right
1: the reading room of pet citizen and then we after that uh, the bar closed down moved, I relocated to the upstairs bar at the Gibson
0: so tell me a little bit more about the literary cocktail series because I think that's kind of a,
1: a pretty cool thing oh yeah so literary cocktails are created um, back in the fall of 2015 and it was just being inspired by books I wanted to read more I didn't have anything on my plate at the time. I had just come back from my trip to Spain and decided that I would start up a new bar program in the Reading Room of Petworth Citizen, which was a functional lending library in the back of the greater bar. And that itself became the inspiration where I decided, great, I will just develop weekly changing rotating cocktail menus based on literature. And so I would read a book and then that would be the inspiration for a a menu that would change every weekend and that kind of evolved over the years so it became less about this book inspires this cocktail and it became this one book inspires a whole menu of cocktails and this one book for example this passage in this book inspires this particular cocktail and then it's been going on and i've been continuing the program we obviously had uh, some breaks during the pandemic, but I brought it back on virtual happy hour line world, <laughs> collaborating with a few different places, including Me, on H Street, which is a Burmese restaurant, and also doing a few, few menus now with Siam, which we mentioned earlier. And of course, I'm also back at the Gibson putting up menus again.
0: Okay, this is just fascinating. I gotta do you can you give me maybe just a snippet or an example of a cocktail that you created out of a book?
1: I mean, sure, I'll just pull this menu from last weekend <laughs> last month. Uh so for example, in September, I was reading Gods of Shade, sorry, Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Uh, I love this book. Great. It was all about the sort of Mayan-Mexican old god mythology, which we you know don't see a lot of out there. And uh, I created a few different... So here was a... Here we go. This quote from the book. Prince of the Starless Night, first spun son of Chibalba, you are a god without a throne. I know you, the smoke said. Its voice was low. It resembled a smoldering fire. So then that quote from the novel inspired a... Um, it was a blend of... Tabernus La Venosa Racia Mezcal, Kahlua, absinthe, fresh pineapple. And then it was a, a, the glass that was served in was singed and smoked with cinnamon and star anise.
0: Oh, of course it was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do like wow. fire. I, I love to incorporate fire wow. when I can.
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing. I also understand you host a specialty absinthe night, dubbed the fifth column Thursday. Uh, what's that a little bit about?
1: So back in the reading room, I had partnered up with my colleague, Dan Searing, who you may know, I'm not sure, but we both decided that because we both really loved Absinthe, we would do this um, recurring event, which we dubbed Fifth Column Thursday, just because we decided we would only host it every time there was a fifth Thursday in a month, which happens about three, four times a year. And so that's kind of where the name comes from. And we also liked the idea that, you know, I like to, when I promote the lesser known spirits and wines, which is kind of apparently my thing, uh, there's always the idea of like, it's not just please drink sherry, it's join the sherry revolution. Oh, drink more absinthe, join the absinthe revolution. You know, there's always a, a sense of be like you know, fight the norm to go think out of the box. I like to put out there, which is of course just silly, but so that's kind of the idea from the name of it. And we got an absinthe fountain and then we would put a menu of different absinthe we could get and feature different absinthe service. With the sugar cube, you could do alternative sweeteners um, and I would also feature some absinthe cocktails. And um, we, I've been continuing to bring that back. Um, Dan sort of moved on to other projects, but I've been keeping it alive
0: I have to say, you have a very deep and wide passion for uh, all things, I would say, spirit oriented. And I love the idea that you go off the beaten path a little bit. So with that, and I'm very excited now to come into uh, at least my favorite part of the podcast podcast. (laughs) What's in your glass? And I understand you've got a couple of Sherry's for us that we're going to try today. I'm really excited about this because I want to kind of get your take on these Sherry's and what you think and why you think they're so special. So Chantel, I'll let you take it away. Tell me what's in your first glass.
1: So um, I'm starting with the latest release from Gonzales Baez, the Tio Pepe Fino Rama. And I, I mentioned briefly earlier, there's a series of Anramas that um, Tio Pepe does that is a chose, like they choose specific casks from the Solera of Tio Pepe. And then they only bottle or only um, pull out just a certain amount. So it's like a limited night bottling every every year and everything is tasted like three times, um, by the master blender himself, Antonio Flores, although he's training his daughter to, to take the range, which is exciting. Very cool. And it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful, golden, sort of like a rich, there's like the hints of yellow and pineapple just throughout. It always has a really bright vivacity to it. Um, and the nose is just always so unctuous and bright it's just it's just a very loud fino it has so much more uh character and complexity like much so much more jumps out at you versus the their standard tio pepe and i love the standard tio pepe fino it's actually i sometimes call it my drinking water because i like i could just drink a bottle and be like well that was nice where's the next one it just goes down so well. But the Fino and Rama has a lot more texture. It's like I can, I'm tasting like the tangy, like the lezy, the yeast cells that I can like envision being in the actual barrel. And then you get it. Sort of that yeasty, fun sourdough effect, but it's juicier. It's just a lot more golden, delicious apple versus green apple. A lot more like hints of pineapple rind, even though it's still very savory. And you don't usually get lots of fruit and sherry. In fact, that's kind of the one thing that probably turns off some people is the the fact that we're looking at dry wines and secondary characteristics versus juicy and fruity types of wines. But their Fino you know and Rama, as far as on Ramas that I've had, and Rama, I should probably mention is means my minimally filtered or fined, so they're trying to bottle and bring sherry as close to pouring from the cask as possible but you can't quite do that because you do need to ship and have things not go bad um and their and their release every year is always just so vibrant and golden and yeasty and lazy and it's just unlike so it's like unlike any other sherry on rama that i've had and it's hard not to enjoy it today
0: I have to say, Shintel, I've been doing this a long time. I've never, ever heard anybody describe a wine as loud.
1: <laughs> the thing about sherry in general, I, I think of them as loud, all of them really, because they just are so complex and full of so many different volatile aromas. At any given moment, there's like over 307 different aromatic compounds. And because we're not superhuman, we're just measly humans, we can only really focus on some of those at any given time. But... um That's kind of how I sometimes think about Sherry's as being loud, because they're like, oh, me, and then me, and then me. (laughs) Hi, raising their hand constantly.
0: Um, You also mentioned Solera. Would you just maybe spend a, a, a minute or two on what a Solera is?
1: So the Solera system is very much uh, created from sherry country, and it has actually been adapted to other wine regions, including champagne. Um, And it just has to do with it's a fractional blending wine aging system where you have rows of barrels at the Solera level, which is thusly named, is where you bottle from. But there's the whole rest of the system, which uh, each layer is called a criadera, and it just means... That when you bottle, you pull from the solera, which has the oldest and longest um, um, aging, and then you top off each barrel in turn from each system. Uh, so the youngest wines, you know, go into the next criadera, and then those wines go into the next, into the next, in sort of like a rotation, so that things are always created into a consistency, and then you get your average age and the timing sorted out for when you bottle from the Solera, which is a whole row of barrels. So when I say Solera, I'm talking about a whole bunch of barrels. And that's those are the designated barrels that have been blended over time with that rotation of you pull and you bottle, and then you refill with one system. From the other, you refill, you refill, until you have the, the youngest wines on top and the oldest wines on bottom, if that makes so,
0: sense. Yeah, no, so in theory, uh, I might have a bottle of uh, Tio Pepe Fino you know, that may have uh, wine and you know, little bits and pieces of wine dating back 20, 30 years?
1: Oh, yeah, that's, that's the theory. Like There's always just a little bit of wine that's super old from the founding of the Solera. So, for example, El Maestro Sierra is another bodega that likes to give you a date that confuses everybody. There's always like this date from the 1800s on the label. You're like, what? And it's like the founding of their Solera but at the same time, no, the wine in there is still going to be an average, you know, three years, five years, seven years, okay. depending on the brand. But they're they're letting you know that the Soler was first founded here. So somewhere there's just a little bit of that wine in there, which is always fun. Yeah,
0: it's kind of cool. So um, what do you have for us in your second class, Intel?
1: So on the other end of the dry spectrum, we've got the Gonzales us Alfonso Oloroso, which is just such a great Oloroso. It is the epitome of when I when I teach Sherry and I talk about dry Oloroso and I, I think about this wine and because it kind of adapts from, I think I mentioned earlier, you can taste it with uh, savory food, some pork ribs roasted in a dark sauce, maybe a black bean sauce. You can have it with like a triple stock ramen. You can have it with some dry aged beef, but then it also tastes really well with pumpkin pie like they go so right together so i just like the adaptability and the versatility of why i call sherry such a perfect host so yeah the nose for example immediately jumps out and i'm getting that like fresh baking spice the walnut um that sort of like that sweeter edge like it, there's something i call the reverse sour patch effect when i when i smell oxidative sherries um when you smell them and you're taking all the aroma aromatics and the complexity in and, and you it's hard not to think oh this is this might be a sweet wine but then when you taste them it hits your palate like it does now and it's like oh wait this doesn't smell like like uh spice cake this actually has this actually tastes much drier and finishes much drier versus a sour patch kid where you you start and it starts off really sour and then it ends up sweet so I, it's my reverse sour patch theory I find it easy to explain it that way, so it's it's delicious. it's warming, it's great for the end of the day. it's, it's a it's a great contrast for their from their Fino to their Olorosa. It really gives you that sense of wow, there's such a breadth of range going on here
0: and and so you mentioned pumpkin pie. would this maybe be something people would think about putting on their table for Thanksgiving this year?
1: I think they should. I mean pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie. I love sweet potato pies. There's just something really fun about that root element and the spices that go in those pies that are in the sherry they just they're automatically kind of nurture each other and work together well
0: and i don't think we could actually pick a better time to be doing this podcast because as i understand it international sherry week is uh, coming right up on us i think november 8th to the 14th
1: that's right so um we're we're, we're we're coming in fast. International Sherry Week, 8th through 14th. Um, right now, there's 30 countries involved around the entire world that kind of put together events that celebrate sherry. Anything from tastings to sherry pairing dinners. To I, I've got I've got so many events. I've, I like a, I've got a sherry haiku competition, oh for example.
0: <laughs> I would love to hear. I think that's going to have to be a separate podcast, but I want to hear more about <laughs> that at some point. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of wines, you know, there's drink champagne day and there's drink cabernet sauvignon day. But no, sherry, international sherry gets an entire week
1: well if you think about how many different styles there are i think it makes sense to be like you know what let's drink montana on monday let's drink so fino on tuesday amontiano on wednesday let's have some palo Cortado on thursday oloroso on friday and then have something sweet on saturday and sunday i think wow. that makes sense
0: and you know I, i'll tell you what else was sweet my time with you today chantelle i can't thank you enough oh. this has been absolutely fascinating it's so good to see you after so long and you have absolutely opened my eyes to an entirely new world of sherry i'm very excited about international sherry week
1: great i'm so glad to be here this was fun it was nice to see you and catch up and i hope people pick up some sherry and celebrate sherry week with everyone
0: absolutely so again thank you chantelle good to see you and thank you for being on the on the uh, podcast That'll do it for this episode of the Vine Guy WTOP News Podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well.